0: Welcome back to the Behind the Wealth podcast. Roger Abel here with co-host Elias Randall. Eli, I realize it's been a really busy week in our inbox. We actually had probably more listener questions than we've had in a long time. And, and some of these are from the last month, but I thought today we probably should try to tackle some of these. And as we get into the, the summer season, I answer some of the questions people have as they're preparing for retirement or trying to save money. Um... And I'm just going to kick it off. This is probably one of the most common questions that I I personally get from individuals who are nearing retirement or getting ready to pull the trigger. And when I say nearing, let's say anywhere from being retired to like five to seven years beforehand. And I'm going to read the question uh, that actually came in. It came in from Roy and he asked, can I go into retirement with mortgage debt? My wife and I are about five years from retirement. We have always planned on having the house paid off before we retire. We refinanced into a low interest rate several years ago with the goal of accelerating payments as retirement nears. But we have been putting it off and we've used some of the extra cash flow to enjoy retirement, creating fun experience with our grandkids while we're still healthy to do so. We could trim our discretionary budget and put an extra eight to ten thousand on the house each year to have it paid off before retirement. But we are torn between going into retirement debt free and wanting to continue our lifestyle. So I, I get this question a lot and, and I feel like there's two people. First off, this is my opinion, there's two people that retire. House paid for, house not paid for. Okay. That's the first thing. Are you gonna be a paid for house person or not paid for? Ideally you'd have the house paid for. Because the the first thing to look at is what's the cost of this mortgage and the cost to keep this place going. For most people it's, you know, $1,000, $1,500 a month, maybe $2,000 a month is their mortgage. Somewhere in that range is their mortgage payment without taxes and insurance, just clearly just principal and interest. And if you start to look at how much, let's say you have a $2,000 a month mortgage payment, principal and interest, $2,000 Two thousand a month. That's twenty-four thousand a year. Well, to generate twenty-four thousand dollars a year in today's um, interest rate environment, and I'm just going to assume four percent, you need to have six hundred thousand dollars saved up to have enough interest off investments to to make that 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 loan payment. So the idea that these people are going to save an extra eight to ten thousand a year over the next five years, which let's call it 50 grand, that's not really gonna change their retirement outlook whatsoever. But having the paid for house will absolutely change their retirement outlook because they just took off $2,000 a month of expenses. So first thing is, I believe you should set a plan up to pay your house off for retirement. So if you're seven years, 10 years out, it's pretty simple. You can go to any amortization calculator and you can Google that out there uh, to get one. You can punch in how much you owe, how many years or months you want to have until this house is paid for, your current interest rate, and it will spit you out the payment that you need to make to pay it off in that number of years. So that's the first thing I would do. If You plan on paying it off, let's get it pay off. Um, I know there's an argument out there that, well, my investments will do better. I believe this is one of those cases where it's not purely numerical. It's not just about the numbers. A lot of this has to do with the feel-good feeling, the house being paid off. We take away all this stress of our largest liability in retirement for most people is their house. You relieve all of that stress. You know, I've never seen a house get foreclosed on. That's paid for. Like, that doesn't happen. As long as you pay your taxes, they're not taking your house away. So the argument that, you know, you sh- you shouldn't pay it off because we have this really low interest rate. Well, who cares? Pay it off. Now, I'm going to flip the coin quick because not everybody can pay it off. You know, we see 60 year old 62-year-olds, 65-year-olds, Elias, that have, they owe $250,000 on their mortgage. And... They're out there and they're trying to be responsible. So let's say they're 65 years old. And I actually had this happen with an individual. They're 65 years old, not in great health, and they have a 15-year mortgage on their house and they can just afford it. And they said, well, maybe we could cut back in these other areas and then we'd be able to afford it or we could sell this house and we could rent. And I'm like, well, your house payment is going to be the same amount as renting, so we went through and worked their budget, and this is three years ago. So interest rates were st- actually this is like five years ago. Interest rates are still low, and I just told them I said, "Well, if you're willing to rent, why don't you just rent from your from yourself?" And they said, "Well, what do you mean?" I said, "Well, just refinance this out to a thirty year mortgage. It's going to take five hundred dollars a month off your payment, and all of a sudden you have some discretionary cash flow." I go, what good's it going to do for you to have a paid off house when you're 82 years old? Paying off for your kids?
1: So Zero. Yeah, zero zero. good for them. So
0: I think what I like to talk to people about is figure out what camp you're in. Can you pay the house off by retirement? If you can, you should. If you're never going to have your house paid off, you're not going to have your house paid off until you're in your 80s. And this advice has changed a little bit because of interest rates. You may be better off just stretching out the loan and getting something that fits your lifestyle better so you can enjoy it versus getting your house paid off at 82 and be like great now i can't do anything because most people at 82 don't have a whole lot of lifestyle
1: and it's at some point you're either own your house outright or if you're still paying on it it's the same as renting right no matter what you need a place to live you're not going to you're not gonna go live on the streets, right? So you're either gonna pay rent or pay mortgage to the bank. So
0: you don't own that house until it's paid for. So if it's paid for at eighty two, you don't own it till then. So you're still renting. Call it what you want. You're still a renter. Yeah, the you're bank can take it away bank. if you yeah. don't pay. You know, the government can take it away if you don't pay your. Or the state can take it away if you don't pay your tax. They can auction it off all those different things. You don't own that house. You're renting until it's paid for.
1: Yep. So the next question from a listener's name is Darren. Darren, his question, should my future spouse and I combine our finances? I'm getting married later this year. It is both of our second marriages In our previous marriages. My fiance and her ex shared their finances. My ex and I kept everything separate. As the wedding approaches, we are discussing what to do with our finances. Is there any advantage to either scenario? Okay. So I don't know about so much advantage, disadvantage. I think in general, you should be in agreement on how you're going to do it. Um, at at my house, all the finances are joint. So to me that that's what works best for our family. We're aligned on things financially. I do know that there's many families that don't do it that way that do the finances separate I don't have an opinion one way or the other. I think what's important is families are doing what works best for them. Um, now there should probably be some ground rules, like maybe spending limits or hey, if a transaction is X or under, go ahead and buy it. Um, you should be aligned on your savings and like especially long term savings where if you're doing separate finances and one is a super saver doing 25% of their salary into the 401k and the other one's not saving anything. Well, someday that's going to be a very large discrepancy on, oh, well, we manage this separately. I have X, you have nothing. Well, now what? So I think you can make it work either way, but there there needs to be some sort of conversation and some sort of agreement on how it's going to work. You know, I... It's not fair that it's it's really not fair one way or the other that one person's doing all the spending, one person's doing all the saving. It also wouldn't be fair for one person just managing the budget and the other person not. So there's a lot to consider. And here's the other thing I, that we know. So financial stress is one of the main causes of divorce. And the divorce rates are already high. Marriage is... Uh, it's, People are constantly working on their marriage to get better, communicate better, and all that. When you bring in financial stress, it just adds a layer and level of things that it can make it unmanageable.
0: I, I think that I think it's extremely difficult to have a healthy financial marriage if your finances are separate. I mean, my question is to people that do this, and I do it how you want. I ours are combined at my house if if you had divorced are they still separate
1: if you've outlined it in documents but no like no one's, if, out,
0: no one's outlined it in documents unless they had a prenuptial agreement but you and you and your spouse right. if you had separate finances and you get divorced how are the courts going to look at it it's they're going to look half. at it as one pool of money
1: yeah so, one pool yep
0: and and i i understand people are like well that's what i earned and she earned well yeah but Once you're into a partnership together, you're married, like, you're supposed to share the stuff. And I feel like people that keep this separate, there's always animosity. And I know people who have their finances separate. And you mentioned one person's a super saver in their retirement and one person's not saving anything and yeah, the so person do do saving at that
1: point when the, you retire and one of you is rich and one of you has nothing well, then per, what do you is do? Is the person
0: who has the money not going to take care of the person who doesn't of course they are of course they are so that that's where it's a little silly and the other thing is like you know then it becomes a competition of who can make more money so i have more i just i feel you know if, if you're worried about you know rainy and spending that's pretty easy put all the money in one pot, figure out what the total budget is, then say, Hey, we have $4,000 left each month. Here's what you can spend. Here's what I'll spend. Like that's what we do in our house kind of for the budget. Like here, here's Megan's money for her and the kids and whatever. And then here's mine for fishing and toys that I want to buy. And it's not like it's a strict budget. Like you said, if it's over a certain amount, like, yeah, we'll have a discussion about it, but most things, like if we need it or want it, then just go get it, but as long as it's kind of within those parameters.
1: Yeah, so I, ran, I, I but ran... once you
0: count, once you start counting, it's not going to lead to anything really good. If you're keeping score, what one person's spending versus the other, and you know, I, most right, so healthy I, financial relationships are jointly held.
1: They are. So I have a story that this is almost... When I learned of this situation, it's like it's mind blowing where and it's a situ, it's a um, husband and wife manage finances separate. Um, husband works with someone, professional office, wife works with someone else, professional office. Well, they've always done the budgeting and ran the finances separate and somehow like the husband saved all the money and then the wife has taken money out of her retirement to like help family members and kids and, and that's such, it just becomes such a convoluted situation where how is, and I just, for, maybe I'm too simple to understand, but how has one person been a super saver in the household and one person has taken money out of retirement to make ends meet for their kids Like isn't there a better middle ground that's gonna work for everyone involved? And then, and they kind of wanted to, they wanted to like do a financial plan and kind of go through some stuff. And I wouldn't, I honestly wouldn't really even know how to help. The first thing that needs to happen is they need to be more aligned in their financial situation. I just thought that was a that's a really odd situation to be in where. You're five years away from retirement. One of you has done a great job. Meanwhile, the other one has taken loans against the 401k at work to, like, help pay for kid college and cars and stuff. And it was just, to me, that that's odd. I don't know how you really operate in that type of system.
0: You know, here, here's what I feel happens when people operate separately. It's almost like a form of financial infidelity.
1: That's a deep, that's a deep term. I mean, think
0: about it. Like if someone's taking loans in their 401k, that, that has an adverse consequence on the whole family. But if you're keeping it separate, you get to do that and not tell anybody. It's like a big secret or you can, so if your finances are separate, you can go rack up $30,000 in credit cards and not tell anybody because it's your responsibility. I think it's probably a joint household responsibility (laughs) because you're operating this thing together. So, um, unfortunately I just feel like, Yeah, i'm gonna lead to the next question i feel like this show's all about like keeping stuff from your spouse which you know we we think you should be on the same page as your spouse and you know do this together it's really hard it's really hard to be successful financially
1: i do not endorse keeping secrets from any spouse
0: but i just it's really hard to be successful financially together if you're doing this separately and you're keeping secrets like it's just not great. This this next question is all about this. This came in from, this is an anonymous, so they, they want this to be a secret. This is awesome, Elias. So they don't want to tell us who they are. Can I keep an inheritance, a secret from my spouse? That's the question. I have a family friend who is like a second mother to me growing up. She recently told me that I would be inheriting a sum of money from her IRA when she passes. My spouse and I have different views on finances, so I'd prefer that the money go to me as separate property.
1: I don't even think that's possible.
0: But it is. It is. There's only a few community but, property states. Um, okay, so if but, you want this to be a secret, contact an attorney. But the question is: is why don't you? I mean, nothing good comes of keeping an inheritance a secret from your spouse. Nothing good's going to come of that. Only bad things can actually happen.
1: You know, I was just thinking, well, you would have to designate your spouse as the the beneficiary of your account, but you don't have to tell people when you make them a beneficiary.
0: But if it's not an IRA, it doesn't matter.
1: Well, an inherited IRA. I, this
0: wasn't didn't say this is an IRA. Oh, I thought it did. No, I don't think so. Oh, yeah, maybe. You're right. Um, but either way, like you could try... But I think the bigger question for someone to ask yourself, um, why do you want to do that? I don't really think it's because you disagree on finances. You want to just keep a secret that nobody knows about. I think people that want to keep the secrets just want to blow the money themselves and not tell their spouse how they're spending it.
1: So I do have I do have a story of when I do think it's a good idea to keep inheritance a secret. You want to hear yeah, it? Yeah, I do want to hear it. So, this was um th- this was a a client that inherited money from a brother. So, all the siblings are grown up. The brother apparently had contentious relationship with the other siblings. So, the brother made the w- one sister the primary beneficiary of all of his his home his retirement savings, all of his assets. Um, And she made the comment to me that she wasn't going to tell any of her family that the brother left everything to her. I mean, I think they knew, but wasn't going to tell them any amounts, how it's going to work and all that. And I do think that is a situation where you are better off keeping that to yourself. You know, as your brother decided he wanted you to have everything, and the other two or three siblings who however many it was he didn't want them to have anything so at that point it's really none of their business um what goes on and with inheritance it can cause a lot of uh rifts in a family so they're probably just better off not having the information i yeah, thought that made her life uh simpler by doing that i think it that,
0: that way. is completely reasonable but it's just that's not a spouse those are your brothers and sisters
1: you know, I know. You want well, look, I just wanted to bring yeah, up a situation where yeah. it's probably is a good idea to not tell everyone what's going well, yeah, on. Yeah, because
0: of, there's just arguments and answers like, why? What did we do? Like all the stuff you don't want to answer. But then imagine that you inherit it. Let's say you inherited half a million dollars and you don't tell your spouse. They're going to find out eventually. They're going to find out. Yeah. Then how are you going to answer to them? Well, I didn't want to tell you. Why didn't you want to tell me? Like I just imagine. The question's going round and round if you try to hide an inheritance from your spouse. Yeah, that's not if, a
1: very adult thing to do. Yeah, either. that's not
0: adulting. So, like Elias, I'm going to let you take the next one, too. So, um, you know, the next question comes from another couple that doesn't really see eye to eye on their finances. And one thing I I recognize, here's one thing I've noticed with some of our most successful people that we work with. One person in the household typically is kind of running the financial show, but the the other person is informed and has an idea of what's going on, but they're not kind of running the show. Right?
1: Yeah, that's typical.
0: And I think sometimes when you have two people who want to run the financial show, that's when you don't necessarily see eye to eye. You know, if you think about our most successful people, we have spouses that are coming in here that are uninvolved in the investment aspect of their life but their spouses bring them into the meeting so that they have somebody to work with if something happens to the person who's running the proverbial financial show. Yeah, I think it's a more common reason to actually work with a financial planning firm than most people actually realize.
1: I I agree with that. I I think for do-it-yourself, Investors, and I think what we've found with our firm is there there are do-it-yourself investors that at some point they will establish establish a relationship, mostly for the fact that if something were to happen to them, they wanna know that they can trust what's gonna happen for their spouse Which, when they're not around anymore. And that's that,
0: an adult thing to do. Think about yeah. that, think about why. So let, let's say you haven't went out and met with somebody and you're a do-it-yourselfer, and we have clients that we work with that could probably do some of this themselves. But they choose to work with us because they don't want the turmoil of I do everything. I pass away. And now my wife, not only is she grieving me passing away, she has to go find a new financial advisor because she doesn't want to do any of it. Hopefully she doesn't get taken advantage of and she has to go try to vet somebody like why would you want to do that later in life? All because you might save a l- Arguably, you're not saving money because there's lots of studies out there that shows the value of an advisor, but because you think you're saving a little bit of money in fees to potentially put it all at risk when your wife has to go find somebody in a time of turmoil. So the next question I'm going to throw to you, I'll read it. I'll let you answer it. But um, this couple's asking his name's Heath says, which account should we take money from? I'm in my mid 60s. My wife is in her late 50s. We have two large expenses coming up this year. I think we should pull money from our brokerage account and leave the money in our IRA and Roth IRAs to keep growing. My wife thinks we should take it from the IRA or the Roth IRA because we would be double taxed on the withdrawal from the brokerage account. Which account should we pull the money from? I'll take your um, yes. your take on this, Elias. And I, I actually am pretty sure I know how you're going to answer this, but I'll be interested to see how, how you do answer this question. Okay, so first
1: of all, I don't know what double taxed means. Um,
0: I think she's referring I, to Elias that she believes if they take it out of the brokerage account, they're going to have to pay tax, which they may have to pay some long-term capital to gains tax, but it's not ordinary income tax.
1: Okay. Yeah. So a few things here. Um, well, the more complicated, I'll give a simpler answer. The more complicated answer, some financial planning would be, in order for this type of situation, right? Because I, um, I can make an argument probably for doing it all one of three ways, but to actually make a really good decision, it's gonna depend on a few things. So if you're above 59 and a half and eligible to take money out of an IRA or a pre-tax account uh, without any extra penalty, and depending on the amount and what, what that's going to do for your taxes today versus the size of that account. A lot of times you should be looking at your, especially in your 60s, when you need to spend money, you should be looking at that IRA account. Because what we know is in the next 10 to 15 years, your required minimum distributions will start. If you've already have a large amount of money in there, that's going to continue to grow and you're gonna be forced to take that money out anyway. so in order of operations, the Roth would be the last place I would look. But, but definitely between the IRA and the brokerage account are the two, the two areas I would be looking at. Um, to make a really good decision, you would have to engage in some financial planning to determine what should our tax strategy be, what should our distribution strategy be. And, and then you can make a really, really good decision about where you take that money from. Now, if you're under 59 and a half, easy decision. You take it from your brokerage account and don't pay the penalty.
0: Yeah, I think what I would do is I'd just go out to the IRS website, and this is really how we analyze this stuff. What tax bracket are you in? How much money could I take out to stay in the same tax bracket? If you don't know how to figure out what tax bracket you're in, you pull up your last year's tax return. It'll tell you how much money you made as a household. Go to the IRS website. It'll show you all the tax tax tables. So, for instance, married filing jointly. Let's say, you know, you say make a hundred thousand. You probably could take twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand. Stay in that twenty two percent tax bracket. Then I would probably just take it from the IRA because, yeah, there's so many more things that go into it. How big is your IRA balance?
1: Yeah, if you have,
0: I mean, a- if you have a two million dollar IRA, or you two million dollar four hundred one k? You might want to take it from there because once you hit RMD age, it might be worth four. And now you're going to be required to take 160, which automatically puts you into, in today's tax world, a different tax bracket. So, hard to answer this. This is where you got to really look at a lot, like you said, Elias, lots of different factors to figure out what the most advantageous thing is from a tax standpoint. Um, I think the good news is for these people, though, what they've done, whether they know it or not, they put themselves in a great situation that they have choices as to where to take money. If you think about one of the strategies we talk to people about is, you know, if you have three buckets of money to take money from, we can maximize the withdrawals from a tax standpoint. So people always ask, well, wouldn't I want to take all from this account first? A lot of times we have individuals who are taking money from two different types of accounts, IRA and brokerage. It could be IRA, brokerage, Roth. All dependent upon gains in the in the brokerage, but this is where some planning really can add value because if all of a sudden you keep yourself in a twenty two percent tax bracket instead of going to a thirty two, that's pretty meaningful.
1: I'd say. 10%. I mean, that's
0: just instant savings by having a tax strategy. So I think I think the way you answer that question is how I would answer it, and I believe it's probably um, the best way to tackle is just get somebody out there to help you do some planning on this. So Elias, let's just shift gears a little bit and let's talk about an important topic, especially in today's world. This has changed, I would say, really over the last, in my opinion, at least 10 years. 10 years ago, you never even heard this term, but it's regarding gig workers, the gig economy. I don't know when Uber and Lyft came out, but I really think that was kind of the start of this, hey, I don't have to work for somebody and I can find these like odd jobs to pick up that I can actually earn a living. And we got a question from Kristen. She says, how can I save for my retirement with a gig job? I left my job several years ago to be a stay-at-home mom. Our kids are in school now. I started working some gig jobs, doing food delivery, grocery delivery. Um, I've been making pretty good money. The flexibility of the gig job has made it made me decide to make it a permanent career rather than going back to nursing. Since I don't have access to a traditional 401k like I would a traditional job, is there a way for me to be saving money for retirement? We did increase my husband's 401k contribution as I began bringing in money, but it would be nice to have some retirement savings of my own. So super common question. Basically, this applies to anybody who's self-employed. Kristen, whether she knows it now or not, is a self-employed person under, you know, how the laws are currently written. I'm guessing she gets a 1099 for, for the income that she gets. And, you know, just so many more Americans are becoming reliant on the gig economy that, that this is a question they need to tackle. Otherwise we're going to start to have another, I mean, we already do have a retirement crisis, but it's going to be worse because most self-employed people are concerned with making money, earning a living. They're not even thinking about, you know, running a business. They're not thinking about retirement yet. Um, In 2021, good statistic, 31% of current or recent gig workers said this has been their main job over the last 12 months. So started off as part-time, 31% of transition full-time, which means 31% of people. That's a lot. It's it's actually a lot bigger number than I thought. But what it means is 31% of the people lost access to an employer-sponsored plan. It's kind of a big deal
1: that is yeah so
0: let's talk about how they can do this you know there's all kinds of different saving options out there for for gig workers one you could have do a traditional or a roth ira obviously there's some income limitations here but if you don't have a company sponsor plan you're eligible to do an ira 6500 for people under age 50 75 people above what people don't know is you actually could set up your own 401k as a self-employed person. It's referred to as a solo 401k. And companies have made it very easy to open these with not a lot of money. Right? I mean, you know, they don't have to have a TPA, a third-party administrator to do some of the work. It's all self-tax reporting. So it's become a very economical option for the gig worker. So you'd still have all the same limits of a traditional 401k, which, you know, if you're under 50, it's 22,500. If you're above, I believe it's 30,000 if you're over 50. So you can still set up your own 401k. The only thing different about your own 401k and an employer-sponsored 401k is that you're not giving a company to give you a match because you are the company. So it shouldn't be a barrier to save for retirement. You just gotta figure out what the best route for yourself is. You know, and maybe, if your husband's not maxing his out, that may be the easiest option is, hey, let's just start maxing my husband's out, and then when we have more money, we can worry about starting mine. Assuming this is a couple who's doing their finances together.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm and, going and back get, to our question for, yeah, four yeah. questions and, ago. And I, right, I get the whole, have some money in your own name too, but really it's all the same. And that would be like, that's the simple thing, right? Just start ratcheting up the 401k contributions.
0: Yeah, and here's what's interesting is this is the challenge that I've found with self-employed people. Income isn't steady. So if you think about a traditional worker, they might have a salary. Let's just say a $100,000 salary. I don't know, just number. Well, they know what's coming in every month. You could have a gig worker who makes $100,000, but they're not getting 8000 a month. One month they get 15, one month they get four. So the money's uneven. So I think what people should think about here is how do I, you know, build up a bigger emergency fund so then I can make consistent contributions to this 401k? Because if you're a business owner and you have a month where you make four grand, but you need eight to live, the first thing you're not going to do is put money in the 401k. You're going to make sure you can feed your family. So it becomes hard for self-employed people to do this. But there's great options out there. If somebody needs help setting one of these up, you can contact us at btwellshow.com. We'd be happy to kind of talk you through your options and uh, tell you what, what's available for that. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll stage the next question for you, Elias. I can't believe how many questions we got. I mean, we have, like, a plethora that are just, like, flowing in. So apparently we've got people listening, engaging, subscribing, liking the show. Um but let me read the next one. This one's actually from Joe. I wish
1: that people would tell
0: us where they're from. Wouldn't be fun to know where people are like.
1: Where is Joe from? Where's Joe from? So if you send a question. Joe, where in, are you from?
0: If someone sends a question, tell us where you're from so, so we know. But Joe asks, should I save for a down payment of a house or keep renting and save money for retirement? I recently paid off my student loans. My parents are always and have always instilled in me that a house is a good investment. And keep asking when I am going to stop renting. Now that I have extra funds that we were going to that were going to my student loan repayment, I'm torn between saving for a house down payment and investing the extra money. What is your advice?
1: So I would start with an upside down question. I would ask, Will buying a home make your lifestyle better? Is that something you would like to do? So I think it is a misconception that people believe to be financially successful, you have to buy a house. That is not true. Let's um, I personally work with several people that they don't own a home and they don't have any intention to ever own a home. They like renting apartments, condo, whatever it may be for the simplicity of it. And they value other things in life, like a flexible schedule, being able to come and go as they please as far as like traveling and doing things like that now if you if the answer was yes i really want to buy a house well in investing and all that's at its basic function a lot of times is a question of time horizon well if you say to me yes i want to buy a house in the next two to three years and let's say you're 30 years old well then we need to probably do both at the same time like we're not going to give up a match on a 401k to save on a down payment on a house we're probably not gonna skimp on Roth. like if you're doing a roth outside of that and you're maxing it you probably want to keep doing that so let's assume you can do both of those things and save for the down payment and get it done in your timeline then, then that's the way to attack it now let's say you have to cut back on some savings be a little bit strategic about it. Okay, I'm gonna instead of doing 500 a month in my Roth, I'm gonna do 200 now, and I'm 200 a month, and I'm gonna save 300 for to start to chip away to down payment on a house. So it, the first step is let's define the timeline on this, right? If it's two years from now, well, you got to ratchet up your your down payment savings. If it's I don't care if it happens in the ne- if it happens in the next 10 to 15 years, okay, that's great, I'll do it. Right, so so that's really that's really the first question. I think there's a balance of doing both that can fit into almost anyone's situation unless it's super urgent in the next 12 to 24 months, then you're going to have to kind of go one way or the other.
0: My concerning thing here is I, I'm not sure I'm not sure really Joe really wants to buy a house. I feel like he's being pressured to buy a house because his bar- yeah, his parents you made you know, my parents instilled in me that house is a good investment. I'd argue that your personal residence is not an investment. In my opinion, investment has to do one of three things. That says dividends, interest, capital gains. That is what it needs to do to be an investment. I know very few people who have bought a house, lived in their house their whole life, sell that house, let's say, for $500,000, take that money, and then use it for retirement. I had, I had a client in here yesterday we'll probably downsize our house to a condo. And the house is worth like half a million bucks right now. I said, but you'll buy a half million dollar condo, right? Yeah, we will. So that's why <laughs> I was going through their financial plan. And I said, well, I've excluded this asset from your financial plan because we're not gonna ever sell our house to you know retire. Yeah, we're gonna downsize. I said, you might downsize from house to condo, but you're gonna spend 500,000 because that's the reality of it. So yeah. Joe, unless yeah. you plan on selling this house someday, to fund retirement. I wouldn't look at this as an investment. It's a lifestyle investment, but it's not an investment that's going to like make you more financially secure. Cause really the only way to get equity out of your house is one of two things, sell it or borrow it. Well, what good investment do we have to borrow money from? I only know one other good one. And I'm not, it's not a good investment. I only know one other vehicle that they talk to you about borrowing money from—that's cash value life insurance. And in my opinion, that's what? horrible. So yeah. why would you what? want to buy? Like, if you have to borrow money from your investment, how's that a good investment? Someone explain that, it to me. So,
1: yeah, that that doesn't.
0: Joe, unless yeah. you want a house, there's no reason to buy a house. I talked to someone yesterday about this. They were talking about renting versus owning. I said, well, you can't just look at what the cost of the rent is and the cost of the house payment. If the cost of the rent payment's $1,500 a
1: month and
0: the cost of the house payment's 1500 which one's more expensive? The house.
1: Right. You're gonna have maintenance.
0: There you go. And most people aren't buying a new house that has a warranty if it's your first house. Guess what homes have the most maintenance? The ones for first time home buyers because those are the ones they can afford. Yeah,
1: right, they're so, the older, yeah.
0: If it's fifteen hundred dollars for the house payment, you better plan on twenty five hundred bucks. Cause you're probably gonna have eight to twelve thousand dollars of your repairs. People don't think about it. You got furnace, water heater, air conditioning, outside maintenance, lawnmower breaks down, just all that stuff starts to add up. So it's not fair to compare or parents to compare, hey, one's fifteen hundred, this is fifteen hundred, you should do this one over here. It's not an equal comparison. So that's the only advice I'd give to Joe that last question actually reminds me of something I saw the other day and I thought it'd be a good way to like put it into perspective, how sometimes the emotional side of things plays a role on how we actually make decisions and helps kind of illustrate how even investing a small amount can have a really big impact over time. You know, we talk about just systematic investing, small amounts. So I can just have a question I want. I want, I'm going to ask you, don't look at, don't look down at the graph. Don't look. Would you have a, would you, would you rather Elias have a penny doubled every day for a month or $1 million? I think
1: the, I think the easy answer is $1 million, which is, I think is, uh, not going to be the right answer. And I can't do that math that quickly for, uh a penny doubling every day, but for 30 or 31 days, that probably ends up being, I'm sure it's going to be more money than what I think it can be. Um,
0: well, it depends on whether it's a 30 day or 31 day month. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, right. Cause yeah, I mean, that last, that, that last double. Um, I, I don't know. I'm guessing the penny, penny doubling every day. It's probably a trick question.
0: It's hundred percent trick question. So if you double a penny every day, 28 day month, 1.342 million dollars. Okay. Three.
1: Yeah. So then, the, if you have little 31 little days, three. that gets to start being a lot.
0: 10.7 million. Yeah. But people don't think it, it started with a penny. But that's another illustration of like how compound interest works. It's exactly the same way.
1: Could you just break I wish this it down? Work, I wish it worked that fast. Wouldn't that be nice?
0: Well, okay, but you could take 31 days and turn it into 31 years.
1: Yes. Yeah, I, I get the example, yeah.
0: But I thought that that was funny because most people would obviously take the million dollars because they perceive that as more money. Um, but I just thought it would be a fun, fun trick question. I actually, until I looked at it, Elias... I didn't realize it was that much. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I knew when I, I knew it was probably the penny, but I hadn't really ever thought of how much a penny doubles every single day. So oh, uh, yeah, now, you know, if somebody knows where days, I can get a double, 10. if somebody knows 7 million, if somebody That's knows nuts. where I can get a doubling penny. I'm in.
1: Okay. I'll take one of those. Uh,
0: well, hey, I want to thank everybody for listening to today's episodes. If you have a question or you want to, that you want us to answer on the show, uh, please send those to btwellshow.com. If you're looking for more content from us, you can go to Facebook at the BT Well Show. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week.
1: Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general
0: information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.